This episode of Breaking Walls is sponsored by... Are you a maker, doer, dreamer who enjoys their time alone? Who thrives on working solo? Then you might enjoy the Creative Introvert Podcast. Every week, I bring you musings, tips, and guest interviews in order to inspire and motivate my fellow creative innies. Find the show at thecreativeintrovert.com. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... What's up, guys? Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 68. My name is James Scully. Also, welcome to November. And our theme on Breaking Walls this month in November is gratitude, which is in honor of the U.S. Thanksgiving Day, which takes place in November each year. In these trying and stressful times, it's easy to feel like we have nothing at all to be grateful for, but that's rarely true. For me, 2017 has thus far been an incredibly rewarding year, filled with new growth, new career paths, new friendships, too. At the same time, All of this, all of this that I've been able to achieve this year, this new growth, it's all been hard won. Nothing has seemed to come easy for me, and perhaps that's because I've been struggling to be present and I'm looking too far ahead, and therefore I'm not looking at what's right in front of me, being in my own body and mind right now. I don't think that this is a symptom that's unique to me, nor do I think that this is a symptom that's unique to any of us in 2017. We're all human. These things, they happen. And we're living in the internet era, and we sometimes lose track of what's important. At the end of the day, to me, the very most important thing that we can all be grateful for is our own sense of self-love. So in honor of these trying times, today on Breaking Walls, I'm going to highlight some of the 20th century author Norman Corwin's radio writings, originally heard on radio in the United States around the time of Thanksgiving in 1941. Why? Well, a lot of reasons, but I'll get into that in a moment. Before I go on, I just want to say, how's that for a cliffhanger, by the way? Before I go on, I just want to say that if this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, thank you. Thank you very much. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn by searching for Breaking Walls. And you can follow us on SoundCloud at The Wall Breakers. With the holidays coming up, if you're looking for a new t-shirt and you want to purchase a t-shirt that says, hey, I believe in unity, then go to thewallbreakers.com slash shop or jamesthewallbreaker.com slash shop. You see, I'm selling for the last six months or so with my friend Reb these typographic t-shirts that use the slang names of the five boroughs of New York City to help show unity amongst New Yorkers near and far. Obviously, unity in all times is incredibly important, and that also means that we have to come to the middle and find some common ground. If you live in New York or are from New York, you know that the boroughs, the five boroughs, we don't always love each other, but in times of great need, We always love each other. And if you're interested in finding out more about The Wall Breakers, please go to thewallbreakers.com. As I just mentioned, this month's theme is gratitude, and it's in honor of Thanksgiving. In the United States, Thanksgiving takes place on the fourth Thursday of November. This year, that's November 23rd. Because there are five Thursdays this month, 
Thanksgiving will actually take place on the last Thursday in November, which is something of an anomaly and also something that happened in 1941, the first year that Thanksgiving was officially indoctrinated by FDR to take place on the fourth Thursday of the month. Although I wasn't alive during World War II, and I'm assuming that most of you out there in listening land weren't either, it certainly feels as though this year has had many parallels with 1941. If we want to learn some lessons from the Americans who were alive 76 years ago, living at the precipice of war after 10 years, more than 10 years, 12 years of a Great Depression, radio, the most famous medium of the day for entertainment, seems like a really good place to start learning our lessons. I mentioned also that I'm going to be highlighting some of Norman Corwin's writings today. He's slightly a forgotten writer, which seems insane to me, given that he's not really taught about in schools, and he lived to be well over 100 years old. He was born in 1910, on May 3rd, in Boston. And at 19, he became a journalist joining the Springfield Republican. In 1932, when he was 22, he began broadcasting after that newspaper, Springfield Republican, formed an alliance with WBZ Springfield and WBZA Boston. So it shows you that. You take some chances, you get some jobs, and you make some new connections. And by 1938, Norman Corwin was at WQXR in New York, and in April of 38, he was hired by CBS. The call letters CBS stand for the Columbia Broadcasting System. I bring that up now because in 1941, Corwin was given the reins of the Columbia Workshop, a radio show, for 26 weeks. This is 26 consecutive weeks. These plays that he wrote, produced, edited, and directed over that span of time have come to be known as 26 by Corwin. In a lot of ways, it was Corwin making his bones, so to speak. By that point, he was in his early 30s, but think about that. 26 consecutive weeks of 30-minute, half-hour plays. That's an incredible body of work to produce in just six months. These plays, they ranged from whimsy to romance to high drama to coming-of-age tales. And this series culminated on November 9th with a play entitled Psalm for a Dark Year. It was an observance of Thanksgiving in a troubled world. <laughs> presents program number 26 of 26 by Corwin. Psalm for a Dark Year. An ode of thanksgiving written and directed by Norman Corwin with an original musical score composed and conducted by Alexander Semler. This is Norman Corwin briefly speaking about 26 by Corwin while being interviewed by Chuck Shaden on August 6th 1976 in California for Chuck's radio program. And then, then came then 26. 26. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now you had a completely free hand to do as you wanted in that series. Absolutely. And you did some fantastic things. I like to think that most of them were, were good, ranging from good to fantastic, if I may borrow your term. <laughs> you certainly may. Uh, where was the... who are willing, join us now, the living and the dead alike. Sit round our votive table 
and give thanks where thanks are due. We shall give thanks tonight for song and bread and such a thing as love and dogged hope and for the guarantee of morning somewhere at some season. You must bring with you to the feast an offering. It can be little, one good grape, a grain of cinnamon, a sentiment, three bars of an old folk song, half a notion, a living thing that's glad of living, be it a mosquito fresh from lava or a floating spore. Sit where you will. There are no place cards here and no priority. The good right hand of fellowship is at your left and at your right perhaps an antique pharaoh or a medieval saint, a poet temporarily run out of couplets or a plumber just arrived from the installing of a sink. Please note there is no head to this round table. Instead, an empty chair reserved for any perfect man and uh, therefore fated to be empty. First now, the breaking of the bread. Who will say grace? St. Paul, will you kindly... celebrate Thanksgiving. As you can tell from my accent, I come from New York City. And since childhood, Thanksgiving has been my favorite holiday because it's the start of the holiday season. I can remember getting up on those crisp, bright, late November mornings already smelling apple and pumpkin pie. My grandmother, she'd be stuffing meatballs or artichokes or mushrooms, and the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade would be on the television. My mother, grandfather, and I, we'd go visiting family. In fact, one of my earliest memories is of leaving my aunt's house after visiting on Thanksgiving, seeing those turning trees and landscapes around us, and climbing into the back seat of my grandfather's brown 1978 Ford Granada. And you know the real significance of the Macy's Parade, right? After all those music acts, the dance acts, the floats, the performances, right about 11.50 a.m., he arrives, the fat man himself, decked out in red on a beautiful float with his long white flowing beard, elves all around him, signifying that it's indeed the start of the Christmas season. The whole day, Thanksgiving, it was always amazing. And for me, at least, Thanksgiving in its entirety has always been a joyous day of celebration, family, food, and fun. And it's the beginning of the best time of the year. Come, come, this is mockery, this festive hour. This breaking bread while famine grins in every land. This music while the whistling bomb sets pitch for all the sharp-tuned instruments of death. This talk of landscapes when the color of the earth is red and growing redder, and you know it. Are you proposing thanks? <laughs> Why, if Satan himself was sitting here among us, he could reasonably proffer thanks to all of our kind for many favors done him in continuing. His horsemen thunder down the ways. His legions multiply like festering bacteria. How can our thanksgivings be unaffected knowing this? Look, no empire built of darkness and disease of soul shall give us pause. 
The interlocking fury of free men will, like a blinding and a sterilizing shaft of light, nullify such decay. What comes of festering bacteria in the sunlight? It doesn't matter. While we speak, new fallen angels plummet from the skies like a malignant hail. The air is a shriek with misery. Yea, the earth is fevered. Pity and mercy both are exiled to a foreign star. And charity's aghast to see a million of our brothers writhing in the puddle of their blood. Has there ever been a tempest time did not outride? The truth that was mixed in with the molten ores when still our smoking planet sought a place among the systems, that truth awaits extraction like a rare but mighty radium deep in the bowels of the earth. Those who have held it shining in their hands never will be countervailed. Never countervailed. Though crucifixion test it and armies of defenders stagger backward through the night, once we understand no weapon in the hand of any host of any hell can strike asunder man from man. Brothers are not for long divisible. And what of the millions of refugees scattered all across the earth in fear? Shall we open up our arms for them without properly vetting everyone through our current notions of security and safety? What to do with these many? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Is there not a Bowery mission left next to these high-rise condominiums that go up for 50000 a square foot that they can stay in for at least one night? And what of Lady Liberty, who beckoned our parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents? She used to scream opportunity with a vibrational force felt on the shores of the Pacific Ocean and up as far north as Alaska. On a Thanksgiving night like this, you could see the northern lights and still hear her. But what about now? Did you know that tickets to visit Lady Liberty cost twenty-five fifty? She's been raped and molested. Her values have been used and misrepresented in the highest order for a fast buck and even faster ten minutes of fame. Does our angel upon earth now sigh and utter me too? Well, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Give me your wretched refuse of the teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Thank you, Miss Emma Lazarus. Your beautiful inscription reminds us that, indeed, hope does spring eternal, like the first time a newborn wraps her hand around her mother's finger. Is there anyone here who can confirm this statement? I, being a mother several times over, am thankful for the love of it and the pain of it, for the growth up from the crib and the teething and all the trouble and the coming out of trouble. For the cured abscess of the ear which Emmy had, getting better the way it did after we were so worried and sat up all night for two nights and didn't get a wink of sleep. Yes, and for Charles getting over being tongue-tied. And Joe, the wild boy, getting married to such a fine girl as Louise and settling down. And for my husband, Donald, to have lived to see his eldest daughter, Hannah, married and bringing up a nice family. And for the letters that the children write me whenever they can. And the cards they send me on Mother's Day. And for the radio when it gets lonely. Especially in the wintertime when all the summer folk have gone away. 
For all these things and many others, I am thankful. this thing. I who have come a long distance to this table and must go far hence. I verify this thing. That brotherhood is not so wild a dream as those who profit by postponing it pretend. It cannot be that common kindness and a working plan are more bizarre imaginings than that a man should squeeze the world into a room and speak across it casually and be heard. I am a wanderer. Was born in exile as my father was, and as my children will be. I'm of a race which lives in every clime and under every flag except its own. I verify this thing. Let now the ram's horn of my father's tribe resound a note of thankfulness for perseverance and for law, for strength out of adversity and order out of chaos. Listen to it. Shrill wind blowing down the wrinkled plains of Shinar through the selfsame wildernesses. Past the hoary head of Sinai blows the melancholy shofar. Sounds the shofar down the ages. Egypt, Jericho and Persia, Greece and Rome, and the dispersion, pogrom, ghetto, inquisition. Past the rise and fall of empires. Past the ebb and flow of eras. Through the gauntlet of affliction. Index inhumanitarum. Pox and physis, plague and cannon. Still, above the blare of trumpets. Still, above the brass of hatred. Blows the horn of benediction. Men have listened. Men have listened. They will listen yet tomorrow for the horn of benediction. For the horn of benediction. Will you pardon my appearance, good friends all? I am but lately risen from the grave. One of a hundred who were stood one morning... One bright morning, between a dozen muzzles and a wall. Tonight it rains where we were lowered in the ground. A rain of mid-November falling cold upon the countryside. Spreading its sorrows over, cautioning the earth that winter is coming. Winter in the bone, and winter in the flesh, and winter on the clean-swept hearthstone. We who are so early quit of this sweet place, young and unready for the quiet, loving the tug of the wind and the swaying grass, the pillowing breasts of our beloved, 
the laughter of our children, loving the look of the day in the east, but seeing it no more, turned, turned away and face to face with night. We who are solemn with dust upon our lips, whisper now our thankfulness in chorus that we have been noted, that we shall not be forgotten, that good men, good understanding men, have noted that we shall not be forgotten. For this, for this, for this much thanks. I think that now is a good time for a refresher course as to what was going on in the world on the evening of November 9th, 1941. Most of the world had been at war since September 1st, 1939. On that day, Germany invaded Poland, breaking a promise to France and England in the process. War was immediately declared, and four days later, the United States proclaimed neutrality, a stance publicly displayed for the first two years of the war. It was a stance that only really delayed the inevitable, because on June 10th of 1940, Norway surrendered to the Nazis, France fell 12 days later, and July 12, 1940, the Battle for Britain began. And Great Britain, during this battle, as it's come, you know, it's famously known, they were pounded by a months-long offensive air raid attacks, and the photos of England reduced to rubble have since become chimes for freedom and an iconic symbol of the country's toughness. On September 27th of 1940, the Axis Pact was signed between Germany, Japan, and Italy. As part of that pact, those three countries promised to immediately declare war on any country that declared war on one of the three going forward. Within weeks, Germany had entered Romania, Italy invaded Greece, and Hungary joined the Axis powers. Although, on November 11th of 1940, a torpedo raid crippled the Italian fleet at Toronto, and 11 days later, Greece was able to defeat Italy's 9th Army, which in turn opened up territory for Britain to begin a desert offensive against Italy in North Africa, amid continued end-of-year air raids. While all of this was going on in Europe, the U.S. tiptoed towards an allied alignment on March 11, 1941, with the signing of the Lend-Lease Act formally allowing the U.S. to provide funds and weaponry to Allied powers, while also allowing the U.S. to begin its own production for war. That spring in 1941, the situation became more dire, because in April, Nazi forces invaded Greece and Yugoslavia, both surrendered within the month, and the U.S. also began freezing all German and Italian assets and contact within America. By July, mutual assistance between Britain and the Soviets was set up, and in August, the Nazi siege of Leningrad began as the U.S. announced an oil embargo against all aggressor Axis states, an act in direct opposition of Germany and especially Japan. While Corwin ended his 26 by Corwin run here on November 9, 1941 with this play, he was also at the same time working on something called We Hold These Truths, which we'll get to in a little while. As we all know, on December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor and Manila were attacked. That evening, Corwin began a long-running partnership with Orson Welles in a play entitled Between Americans. Between Americans, starring Orson Welles. The Gulf Screen Guild Theater. The Gulf Oil Companies and your good Gulf dealer are proud to present a dramatic picture of this, Our America. Here is your host, Roger Pryor, to tell you about it. Our 
Good evening, everyone. We welcome you tonight to one of the most timely programs ever heard on the Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Our production of Norman Corwin's script, Between Americans, starring Orson Welles. Broadcast at any time, we believe this program would make every American's heart beat a little faster. Make him hold his head just a little higher. But since the tragic and foreboding news that came today, this program between Americans now becomes an American odyssey. And now, Oscar Bradley's music introduces Orson Welles, who will talk between Americans. This program is Between Americans. That's where the title comes in. We hope you like it, but you don't have to. At any rate, nobody's going to make you stick around and listen to it. That's one of the advantages of being an American. Now, tonight we're doing something quite foreign to the type of thing usually presented by the Gulf Screen Guild Theater. Instead of telling a story about five or six people, we're telling a story about a hundred million. This happens to include you, listener, whatever your name may be. As a matter of fact, names don't bother real Americans very much. Not when we've got states named after French kings and English queens are lifted right out of the Latin language like Montana or out of the Spanish like Nevada and towns. You know, if you were to hold a convention of all the people who live in foreign-sounding American towns, we could fill quite a sizable stadium. Among the delegates registering on the first day would be... Me, I'm the delegate from London. Minnesota. I'm in from Dublin, New Hampshire. Flew in this morning from Cairo, Illinois. Huh? Uh, whose turn, me? Uh, I'm from Canton, Connecticut. I would like I'm to think Paris, that things haven't changed since I was uh, given visitation rights to the pulpit. Uh, but in a sense, they have worsened uh, because I think that the electorate in many countries, particularly in America, has been dumbed down by the worst elements of radio and television, where a single uh, opinion spouter, an, uh, an oracle, is on the air speaking daily to millions of people and poisoning their minds. I think that in the very nature of television as compared to radio, there are great discrepancies. For example, there was no term in radio that is equivalent to couch potato or boob tube because the radio listener had to collaborate with what he was hearing as one collaborates with the author of a book when you're reading the book. And you don't have any visual uh, distractions. The set design is in your head. You cast the characters. You might be listening to an opera, or let's say Carmen, the antagonist and protagonist, at the same time being a very dangerously beautiful woman who dances a fiery Spanish dance with a rose in her teeth. But in radio, she can weigh 500 pounds. Your image of her is that of a, of a dangerously beautiful woman. 
The ear is the realist. Actually, the ear is the organ through which we perceive the subtlest of the arts, which is music. And when you think of the great giants of musical history, Beethoven, Brahms, Bach, Tchaikovsky, all of the Schubert, all of those masters, there's not a, a visual frame in any of their hours of, of, of work. There's greatness. There's, it's, it's a majesty, which is a, mysteri a mysterious medium. I think that the literalness of television has been damaging. In that five o'clock shadow on a candidate can lose an election, as it did with Nixon on his first debate with Kennedy. You ever asked yourself what America means to you? Does it mean 1776? Columbia, the gem of the ocean? Big business? The Bill of Rights? Uncle Sam? Chances are it means none of these things. Chances are it means something very personal to each of you. Something close to your heart, which you'd miss like the very blazes if you were stranded abroad. Might have nothing at all to do with quotes from Madison or acts of Congress. It might be just the feeling about the crisp autumns in New England. Might be the memory of the way they smooth off the infield between the games of a doubleheader. Might be a thing as small as your little finger. By the way, before we leave the subject, what about the original American? The Indians? There's a forgotten race for you. How about the Indian on the nickel? And the buffalo who roamed the back of the great American jit? Seems a shame. No two ways about it. We have forgotten those 100% Americans who went down to quarantine to meet the Mayflower. We don't see them around in person very much these days. But their ghosts are still with us. My name is Barrymore. I'm one of several actors gathered in a studio in California near shores that face an enemy across an ocean now Pacific in name only. We're here tonight to join 130 million fellow Americans in praise of a document that men have fought for, that men are fighting for, that men will keep on fighting for as long as freedom is a strong word falling sweet upon the ear. The following week, at the behest of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, Corwin was given the job of writing a 60-minute play in honor of the 150th anniversary of the Bill of Rights. For Corwin, no single year encompassed the greatest palette of his radio work like 1941. He had returned from a stint writing in Hollywood when he was given the Columbia Workshop by William B. Lewis. For those 26 weeks in a row during the spring, summer, and autumn of 1941, while Ted Williams hit 406, Joe DiMaggio got a hit in 56 consecutive games, 
while Bob Hope performed his first USO performance in California's March Field, while Walt Disney's pictures released Dumbo, and while World War II raged on in Europe and the Pacific, and ultimately, while countries of North America prepare for war, Corwin wrote these plays. This body of work culminated here on December 15, 1941, with the broadcast of We Hold These Truths, which was simultaneously broadcast on all four major radio stations. 60 million people tuned in. It was, at that time, the largest rating share of any program in the history of broadcasting. A first of its kind, a true broadcast, unbroken by professional animosity, unbroken by political lines, by ideological or socioeconomic differences, and it was also boosted by the Armed Forces Radio Service, so that all servicemen and women could also hear. We hold these truths. This is a program about the making of a promise and the keeping of a promise. This is a program about the rights of people. This is a program coming to you over the combined radio networks of the United States, bringing you the voices of Americans, bringing you the voice of the President of the United States. This is a program for listeners in all zones of continental time, for listeners on ships away from home, for listeners in uniform, for listeners on the American islands in the two great oceans. This is a program about the guarantee made to the people of America 150 years ago, a guarantee that has been kept through peace and war and peace and war. I guarantee we call the Bill of Rights. But this is not a night of names, of personalities. Our names or any names are meaningless unless your names are added. Unless you join us. You for whom the sacred rights were written and to whom their keeping is entrusted. You, the guardians of what has been bequeathed to you by millions like yourselves and by the toil of centuries as dark and menacing as this we live in. You, the people of the Federated States. One hundred fifty years is not long in the reckoning of a hill, but to a man it's long enough. One hundred fifty years is a weekend to the redwood tree, but to a man it's two full lifetimes. One hundred fifty years is a twinkle to a star, but to a man, it's time enough to teach six generations what the meaning is of liberty, how to use it, when to fight for we it. the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, 
provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Article 1, Section 1. All legislative the words are dim, but not the meaning of the words. The pens that put this down are dust, but not the marks they made. There was a time when this was shining parchment, when the text was easier to read, when the ink was not yet dry. Suppose that we stopped here in modern Washington before this shrine were to return, go back, go back a little north by east in time and space to one bright afternoon in Philadelphia, that fine fall day when deputies from 12 free states subscribed their names to a new blueprint of a new society. And of the independence of the United States the 12th, in witness whereof we have hereunto subscribed our names, George Washington, President and Deputy from Virginia. Well, now I do So, so the Constitution has been drafted, signed, and presently will be submitted to the states for their approval. Now the conventions all relax. Now their handshakes, felicitations. Well, is everybody happy? Will they celebrate, do you suppose? Will Rufus King go home to Boston and be welcomed by a welcoming committee from the city? Will appreciative Virginians hoist James Madison on their shoulders and parade him through the streets, shouting, Father of the Constitution? Will a thumping band march up and down the town making a noise like this? There will be no speeches. There will be no celebration. No confetti from the windows. Fireworks saluting cannon. Roses strewn beneath the coaches of the delegates. Instead, suspicion. Suspicion by the very men who fought the long fight so that there could be a constitution drawn for the emancipated states farmers, and the clerks, and the hackmen, and the artisans, and the grease-grimed blacksmiths in their shops. These men who only lately put away their guns and powder in a good dry place. These men who won a war of freedom, but who know that freedom must be guarded to be kept. And they're suspicious, and they're talking in the common, in the tavern, and in the parlor and in the foundry room. Didn't think it was necessary. The English thought it was necessary a hundred years ago. They've got a bill of rights. Where's ours? Well, maybe they'll get around to that. Maybe they'll amend the Constitution later. How do we know they will? Well, maybe they're planning some... I don't like this maybe business. When my husband Robert got killed at Trenton, there was no maybe about it. He got killed. He knew what he was fighting for, and he was glad to die for it. Now the fighting's over. I want to see it. What's the hurry? Give them time. It's not an easy job to get a new country running right. That's just the point. It's a lot easier to get it running wrong. (laughs) 
Rights, 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 man. Can't you get that through your head? Why shouldn't rights be written into the Constitution just as much as rules on how to meet and when to vote and how much a senator should get paid? Not they alone. Not only little men like they, whose names escape us, whose names will never be recalled, the men who left their bloody footprints in the snows of Pennsylvania and buried their comrades in a clearing back of a clump of evergreens, the little men who took it, gave it, stuck for the duration, saw it through. Not they alone are doubters, wondering and grumbling, no. There are big names, too. Names now bandied on the tongue, but later to be lustrous, later to be sated. Tom Jefferson, George Mason, Jimmy Madison, Pat Henry. Uh, now, take Jefferson, for instance. You know what he says? Bill of rights is what the people are entitled to against any government on earth. I'll take Pat Henry. I cannot give my oath to support this Constitution without a Bill of Rights. Now, take Mason. A wealthy planter of Virginia who'd rather plant a seed of liberty than 20,000 acres of tobacco. Government to be lasting must be founded in the confidence and affections of the people. Without a Bill of Rights, this government will end either in monarchy or a tyrannical aristocracy. This Constitution has been formed without the knowledge of the people. And it is not proper to say to them, take this or nothing. Well, then... The Constitution is in peril. This document, so handsomely engrossed in Philadelphia, there are doubts about it and suspicions. Will the states approve of it? Approve by ratifying? Will they throw it out? Or will they ratify providing certain changes will be made? Bill of Rights, 150th anniversary of the declaration of the the, uh, ratification of the American Bill of Rights. Were these considered to be uh, prestige items for the network, and that's why they commissioned you to do that, yes. or had you do all of that sort of thing? They wanted yes. something special. They wanted something special, mm-hmm. right. I don't know whether it began with a, uh, with a lust for prestige. It began with a conscionable attitude toward broadcasting. They felt we ought to have a program. The kind of uh, impression it made both in the listening audience of the general public and within the radio industry was extraordinary in that the president of mutual broadcasting and competing network uh, sent a telegram to Paley saying when uh, radio distinguishes itself in this fashion it is good for the entire industry and we want to congratulate you and thank you and you know that kind of of things. CBS itself, uh, there was, I, the program originated here in California, but at New York at 45 Madison Avenue, the headquarters of the network, a memorandum went around that day, the following day, saying, those of you who missed that broadcast last night, for those of you, we are declaring an hour, suspending work for an hour between three and four this afternoon, and all of the audition rooms will be available to have that program piped into these rooms so that those who missed can hear it and those who heard it can hear it again. Uh, You know, it was given that kind of treatment. It is a little hard in the light of of the technological and and productional advances that have been made since that time, Jack, 30 years ago, Mm. right? To estimate the degree of novelty and excitement that that generated. It was quite new, and the devices which I used and the kind of uh, rhapsodic sweep of the concept 
were entirely fresh. Fifty-five representatives of the American people sat in a hall in New York City, in a drafty hall, and made up articles of freedom. Do you think the congressmen from 13 states made up those freedoms out of their own heads, debated there, deliberated there, without assistance, all by themselves, from their own experience? Oh, no. They had much help from many nameless and unknown, from dust in quiet places, from broken bones deep in the earth, deep in forgotten earth, mixed with the empty clay, from bleeding mouths, burnt flesh, cropped ears, from numberless and nameless agonies. The delegates from dungeons, they were there. I said that men were born equal. That is all I said. The delegates from ashes at the bottoms of the stakes, they were there. The king did not approve. The gallows delegates, whose corpses lifted gently in the breeze, they too. The exiled wanderers, the Christians killed for being Christians, Jews for being Jews. The Quakers hanged in Boston town. They made a quorum also. Prince, we're not prince. The murdered men. The lopped off hands. The shattered limbs. The red welts where the whiplash bit into the back. Must you know what they said? Must you know how they argued? Must you be told the evidence, the silent testimony of the rays? Must it be told verbatim? Listen then! <coughs> that was an argument for an amendment. <coughs> that was a speech in favor of an article of freedom. <coughs> that praised the passage of a Bill of Rights. How much of all this must be told to be believed? Must it be drawn on diagrams? X marks the spot where decency was last observed. The dotted line shows how the victim staggers. The arrow points to blood. The headsman, he was there in Federal Hall. The man who turned the ratchets on the rack. He sat in the assembly, too. Nero was there. Caligula. King Philip. Torquemada. Cotton Mather. All the tyrants and the martyrs who had gone before. That quietly. Unseen among the representatives read from their memoirs, expert testimonies, found their ways into the records and between the lines. 
all the long and bloody history of fanaticism. Murder in the name of God. Torture in the name of love. Crucifixion in the name of safety to the crown. My God. My God. He too sat in the Congress. The mild man. He was a consultant in the business at hand. If I may, I'd like to address now a generational bias that I think was unintentionally perpetrated given everything else we've heard from Norman Corwin. All of these male tyrants, all of the meek, all of the wicked, all of the just who passed through our world and left their energy behind at the Congressional Congress for the Bill of Rights weren't alone. They were joined by queens and nuns and women sachems and by my mother and yours. It's our job to take these pieces of parchment and apply them to our current frame of thought and tweak that language where necessary to progress the spirit of the law for our time. This is what they meant in Federal Hall and what they voted for 150 years ago today in Richmond. Those 10 amendments are not dusty statutes loafing in retirement. They're a pep talk to the fighters and a fortress to the undefended. They double bar the front door of the home against culprits and searching parties. Stand the drinks for everybody toasting freedom. And of all things, they are not a set of legal clauses, dry and dusty. Uh, although that, that's Amendment 7, that makes us wonder. Amendment 7, in suits at common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial shall be preserved. And no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. Uh-huh, well, except for that, not like a lawyer's brief at all. But mostly, mostly like a kind of a freestyle ode to liberty. Ten verses long. Amendment 8. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. That's treason in most of your sentiment like that today. Amendment 9. The enumeration and the constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Do you, do you, notice, do you notice how many times it says the people? Well, now, can it be because it means the people? Yeah, it can. Amendment 10. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Powers reserved to the people in the Bill of Rights. <laughs> How the mighty and the proud have fallen. Gentlemen, an office curtain. Well, <clears throat> we know what freedom is now. But for a while there, like a lot of us had forgot what it really meant and how much we had of it. The news that kept piling in from the four corners of the earth. <laughs> that reminded us all right. Ladies and gentlemen, an editor. There have been attacks on the freedom of the press and strangleholds of various sorts, but they've been broken every time. And today a man is free to start a paper, run it as he pleases, differ from the next man, all he wants. 
That would make it seem to me, for one, that our rights have come down undamaged. Ladies and gentlemen, a worshiper. I go to the church of my choice. When I don't wish to go, I don't go. Ladies and gentlemen, an auto worker. We got the right to organize. We got the right to bargain collectively. Those are good rights, and we're proud of them. We're better workers on account of them. Ladies and gentlemen, a manufacturer. There is nothing in any law which forbids us to forget class differences and work together to strengthen the sinews of our country. Ladies and gentlemen, an okay. I got a right if I'm hungry and out of work, which I has been, to go looking for work anywhere in the country. The big court says nobody can't stop me from looking. Dang it, that's my right. Ladies and gentlemen, a mother. I might be afraid to bring a child into the world, but not to bring a citizen into the population of the United States. Sons of men, daughters of the mingled lovers of the many tribes who make us what we are, brothers, sisters by the millions, sitting with us at this table, and circled round us through the far, wide-spreading states. What year this is, we shall not soon forget. Remark it, each of you belonging to it. This year shall skulk among the blackest annals ever. Pitied, wondered on, and sung about as long as our posterity looks back to see the how and why of what has gone before. None of us makes pretense to himself of tranquil temper. There are no barefoot pleasures in these hobnailed times. The world is burning. It is burning. Flame is never subtle in its ways. It has a pattern all can recognize. We smell the smoke and feel the scorching air and see the embers snatched up by the winds and blown this way and that. But we are thankful. Thankful in this graceless year for the strong joy of the challenge. For defiance in the nostril and the weapon in the hand. Shall we despair? Who've suckled freedom on the brew of vintages of wrath? Shall we be thankless for the passions stirring in our blood? The love of country, of each spine of cactus and each particle of mist? Shall we be thankless for the way we walk? Fearlessly, not stealing glances backward. For the way we talk? For scorn and laughter and the clenching of the fist? Come, come, Americans, come now and praise the broken bread together and the fiddle and the tilling of the land, the bellboy by the shoals and Joe, the wild boy, getting married to Louise. Praise now October and the song of songs together. Praise the men who never shall forget. The steel mills working through the night, the rifle factory, the weapon in the hand. Arise now and give thanks where thanks are due. That's putting it You know, perhaps in the end, 2017 won't be looked back upon as being very similar to 1941. 
the more we see each other as potential loved ones, I think the easier it'll be to write whatever future we'd like. It can be scary, believe me, I know, but every time I stop and consciously think about all of the things I should be grateful for, like love shared with friends and family, good health, the ability to be connected to the world, that list is always long, and the list of things that I truly feel ungrateful for is always around zero if I really stop and think about it. I don't live with that mindset every day. I don't know that anybody really can, but I do think that every day I do live with that mindset, it's a good day for me. The radio shows featured in tonight's episode were the Columbia Workshops, Psalm for a Dark Year, originally broadcast on November 9, 1941. The Screen Guild Theaters, Between Americans, originally broadcast on December 7, 1941, also known as Pearl Harbor Day. And We Hold These Truths, originally broadcast on December 15, 1941. The first two aired on CBS, and We Hold These Truths was simultaneously broadcast on all four major radio networks. As I mentioned earlier, it was, at the time, listened to by 60 million people and was the most listened to broadcast in history. The interviews featured here with Norman Corwin were recorded with Chuck Shaden in 1976 and by Michael James Casey for the documentary The Poet Laureate of Radio, an interview with Norman Corwin, which was recorded in 2007 during Norman Corwin's 97th year. The music featured within today's episode was Piano Concert in B-flat Minor by Freddie Martin, Flag of Columbia, recorded by Jacqueline Schwab for Ken Burns' Baseball, Over the River and Through the Woods, recorded by the United States Air Force Band, Night Part 3 Minstrels, recorded by George Winston for his album December, Al Kolba Azul, composed by Elliot Goldenthal for the motion picture Frida, Symphony No. 5, Opus 67, First Movement, composed by Ludwig van Beethoven, Amazing Grace, sung in Cherokee by the Wind Spirit Drum, The Minstrel Boy, which was also recorded by Jacqueline Schwab for Ken Burns' Baseball, Jefferson and Liberty, recorded by John Owens, Lardenois, and finally, Only Forever, by Bing Crosby. Our intro music was César Franck's Symphony in D Minor, Part 3, The Finale. Our outro music today will be Modest Mussorgsky's Pictures at an Exhibition, Promenade Number 1. As the calendar turns to November, the autumn season, it's in full effect here in New York at least. The clocks are going to soon go back this weekend, bringing with them earlier sunsets and more indoor gatherings. Tomorrow is never certain, we know this, but I think that today can always be a better day. And if you want to reach out to me for any reason at all, please do so at jamesatthewallbreakers.com. The Wallbreakers Unity t-shirt line is available at thewallbreakers.com slash shop. The next time you hear my voice, we'll be Breaking Walls episode number 69. That will drop on November 15th. Until that time, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode number 68, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Thank you.
This is WBBN, the Wallbreakers Broadcasting Network. Thank you, and good afternoon.